All right, well, today we hear a story from the Gospel of Matthew. In this season of the Epiphany, we are um, hearing about Jesus' ministry, and particularly right now, how Jesus started his ministry. His ministry was the, the three years of his life in which he traveled around the country of Israel and taught, preached, proclaimed the good news that the kingdom of God had come near. So today's story is probably familiar to a lot of us. This story of these four men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, out in their boats fishing, and Jesus walks by, calls them to follow him, and they leave the boats, they leave their father, and they follow Jesus. So it's a familiar story, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that as Americans in, in our time, so many centuries later, that we naturally pick up on all of the nuances of this interaction and, and what it meant in its own context, in its own time and place. So learning more about the customs of the time and place of Jesus can help us to understand better what Jesus is doing. And this week I've been reading a book called Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus by two women, Anne Spangler and Lois Tverberg. And this book is sharing background about how Jewish teachers in Jesus' time would have gone about their ministry. And it's really interesting to look at how Jesus adopted some of their practices and their methods and how in other places he did his own thing and reinvented what it meant to be a teacher. So I'd like for us today to consider three verbs in this passage as a way to get into this topic of what did Jesus do in a similar way and what did he do differently? And looking at these verbs will help us to have a deeper understanding of what it means for Jesus to call us as his disciples today. So, and there's going to be a quiz at the end about what the verbs were. So, the first verb is call. So, we hear Jesus calling these four fishermen to follow him. So, what about this was typical at the time, and what about this is unique to Jesus? Well, Jewish teachers in the first century, in Hebrew they were called rabbis, they did choose young men to come along with them and to be part of what they were doing. And they would have chosen men who had the highest level of religious education. So in Israel at this time, all boys would have gone to Torah school from the age of five. So the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they would have studied God's word. They would have learned God's commandments. They would have gained wisdom from those books of the Bible. And then as they got older, that large group would get whittled down at different points of time. So when they turned around 13, most boys would finish their studies and go join their families in whatever their family trade was or their family farm. And then again, at the age of 18, that, that smaller group that had continued on for five more years, a lot of them would then finish their studies and go and get married and join their families in their work. So by the time men would have reached young adulthood, you were really dealing with the cream of the crop, the best and the brightest students. And it was them who would have received a call from a rabbi to follow him. And it was a great honor to be called by a rabbi. It meant that you really stood out for your intelligence, your aptitude for religious learning, for studying God's word, for your love for God. 
So that's how things were normally done. So knowing that, what about Jesus' call stands out to you? What are these guys doing when Jesus calls them? Are they up to their necks in Torah scrolls, parsing Hebrew verbs and debating the significance of Leviticus? No. They're out taking part in the family business. They're spending their nights fishing, and during the day, they're mending their nets and selling their fish. They are working. And that means that these guys were probably not at the top of their class in Torah school. They would not have ever expected a rabbi to come along by the seashore and consider them to be disciple material. So Jesus' criteria for his disciples is very different than the norm of his day. And the basis on which he calls them is also surprising because other rabbis would have probably quizzed their students and debated with them and checked their credentials. But we don't see Jesus doing any of those things here. He just asked them to follow him. Now, we don't know what kind of interactions they might have had prior to this call. We, we do know from the Gospel of John, there's a story we read last week that describes when Peter and uh, Andrew first met Jesus. But even there, he does not grill them on the finer points of the Levitical law. Instead, he seems to have this deep knowledge of who they are, even though they have never met. And he even has the audacity to rename Simon on the spot, having just met him. And he tells him that your name will now be the Rock, or Peter. So Jesus' call of these fishermen is not accidental. He knows exactly who he's calling, and he wants them to join him. So what do we learn today about Jesus' call for us? Well, it sounds like if Jesus walked in the room and picked a few of us to spend the day with him, he would probably pick one of y'all and not the two of us. Religious education, as important as that is, isn't the thing that matters the most to Jesus. Just because you didn't go to seminary does not mean you're off the hook for following Jesus. And it doesn't mean Jesus isn't interested in us. He loves us too. But our religious training doesn't make us more attractive to Jesus or more lovable. Jesus knows each of us deeply in the way that he knew Peter. And his call isn't based on whether we can impress him with how much we know about the Bible. His call to us is personal and intentional and compelling, just like it was in this story from Matthew. So that's the first verb, call. The second one is to follow. What did it mean to follow a rabbi? So these Jewish teachers would invite the best and brightest men to follow them around. But being someone's student or disciple meant a different thing than it tends to mean for us today. Today, being someone's student largely means you're going to sit in a classroom with them while they talk. Maybe they lead discussion, but you're really just getting a very narrow slice of their, their life and their, their time and, and a window into their life, right? In contrast, disciples of a rabbi got to be around him for long stretches of time as they traveled around as a group. So disciples had a lot of access to their rabbi's life. They got to see them in a lot of different everyday situations, see how they handled people, how they handled different ethical issues that arose, 
how they were kind or not to people who offered them hospitality or who showed up and asked a question. So a disciple really got to see their rabbi as their model for how they should live their life, not just what they should think. So following someone had really two meanings. One was literal, and I mean actually literal. These days people say literal and they don't mean literal. It's very confusing. It actually meant literally to follow him as he walked down the road and to walk behind him. But it also meant to have this access to him and to hear his teaching and to have that really shape all different aspects of your life. And there was a phrase that captured both of those meanings. They would say to uh, uh, maybe a new disciple, may you be covered with the dust of your rabbi. Now, most of us don't really aspire to getting covered with dust. It doesn't sound like a great honor, but at the time, it meant you were following your rabbi so closely that the dust he kicked up from the road would land on you. And symbolically, that meant you will get so close to him that his teachings will become the biggest influence in your life and who you become. So that is what Jesus was calling these four men to do, to go out with him on the road, to follow him, to see him in all different aspects of life, and to let his presence shape who they were becoming above any other influence. So what does this sense of following mean for us today? Well, I couldn't help but think about our somewhat new definition that we have today for what it means to follow someone. So how many people here follow someone on social media? Raise your hand. More than that, I'm sure. Now, in some ways, this type of following looks really different, right? Like we're looking at a screen. We could be thousands of miles away from this person. We are likely to never share the same room with them, let alone walk on a road together or trade dust. But if we are honest with ourselves, we know that following someone even just through a screen can have a huge impact on us, on our values, on what we think is important about who we're becoming. We don't have that in-person connection, but they can still be a really big influence in our lives. So it's important for us to ask ourselves, who am I following? Whether it's someone on social media or someone we know in real life, I'm, I'm told that's IRL, is that right? Their influence, is it bringing me more hope, more perspective? Are they challenging me in helpful ways? Am I becoming more wise through following them? Or is their influence in my life making me more competitive, more jealous or envious or insecure or unsatisfied with my own life? Do I have a deeper trust in God because of this person's influence in my life? And I don't by that mean that we should only follow Christian influencers because there are plenty of Christian influencers out there who aren't a great influence. But what I do mean is we should consider how having access to someone's life is affecting us. That access that we get through social media is a very tiny slice of a person's life and one that is very carefully curated and it leaves out a lot. So following someone will change us and we need to think about who it is that we're following. Jesus is always inviting us to follow him first and foremost. 
And while that isn't an easy road, being around Jesus will change us for the best. All right, so the third verb is to fish. Jesus says that if these men follow him, he will make them fishers of people. Now, when we think about fishing, we think of someone with a fishing pole who throws out a line and puts bait on a hook and waits for a fish. It was really helpful to me because it sounds really unpleasant to get hooked through your cheek and like dragged into a boat. I never, as a kid, I was always like, that sounds awful. But we need to remember how they would have fished in the first century. And this story actually tells us that they cast nets out over the side of their boat and they would wait for a school of fish to come through and then they would pull the net back in and gather the fish into the boat. So what Jesus is telling them is, I will teach you to gather people in just the same way that I'm doing right now. Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee gathering people to become part of his mission. And he's telling these men that he will train them and teach them to do the same. He doesn't trick them with bait. He gives them the chance to say yes or no. We know from other stories there are people whom Jesus asked to follow him, and they decided not to. But Jesus will give his disciples the power through his Holy Spirit to gather people into Jesus' mission. And in fact, their willingness to say yes is part of why we are here today. Isn't that wild to think about? This group of fishermen in the backwaters of Israel, them saying yes to following and to learning how to fish for people has changed the world. And so we too are sent out into the world to share the good news of Jesus and to gather people in ways that bring them his healing and his good news and his love. Okay, so I told her there would be a quiz. So what was our first verb? All right, excellent. What was our second verb? Okay, and the third one? Nice, 100%. Good job. All right, I'm going to give you a little bonus verb here at the end as I close, all right? It's another verb that Jesus uses in this passage, and it's one that helps us think about the time of the church calendar that we're in right now. Um, I looked it up, and I realized that today is actually one month from the start of Lent, one month from Ash Wednesday. So the verb is repent. Jesus went about preaching and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And most of us know that Lent is a time for repentance, for acknowledging our sins, receiving forgiveness, and, and turning away from them. But the word repent in Greek has uh, some subtleties to it that are really helpful. And it means to change your mind. It means to be open to God's power to change us during this upcoming season of Lent. God knows most what we need from him, and the ways in which we need to change in order to experience his life. And so I wonder which of those three verbs that you so perfectly repeated back to me captures how you might want to grow during Lent this year. Maybe it's about calling. Maybe you want to hear Jesus' voice more clearly by making more time for prayer each day or reading a book of the Bible during Lent or a devotional. Maybe you want to join a group that's going on here where we do those things together. Maybe Lent for you this year is about following, asking Jesus to show you 
who's influencing you, and to discern whether taking a break from following some people might actually help you to give Jesus more space in your life for his influence. Or maybe it's about fishing, asking Jesus who he wants you to gather this Lent. Maybe it's leading a group here at the church or asking someone to be your prayer partner during Lent, but to do things together as opposed to just alone. So those are some ideas for you to mull over in the next month as you prepare for Lent. And uh, I pray that this Lent will be a time for us to deepen our yes to Jesus, to follow him. And I pray that it will be a time where we will be covered with the dust of our rabbi Jesus.